Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glode. Today I talk with Sandra Rowe, CEO of the Global Blockchain Business Council, referred to as the GBBC, which is a Swiss nonprofit focused on education, advocacy, and partnership across over 40 countries. Sandra was named to the Innovate Finance Women in Fintech 2016 Power List and holds directorships on several industry boards, as well as advising and investing in emerging tech startups across blockchain, robotics, digital assets, IoT, and VR. Now, Sandra has so much expertise in financial markets, and prior to getting into crypto in 2011, yes, 2011, she led an M&A FX and interest rates derivatives advisory group at Morgan Stanley London, and also had some experience working at Deutsche Bank London as an FX structurer. So thank you for joining us today. In this conversation, we start off by talking about Sandra's background in traditional financial markets. Um, and how she got into crypto and just talking a little bit about how banks interacted with crypto then in 2011 versus today in 2021 and how we think they're going to interact with crypto tomorrow. We talk about the excitement and movement around DAOs. We talk about the beauty of open source and Web3. We talk about everything digital payments, central bank digital currencies, stable coins, DeFi, also the interaction of these together with digital ID. We discuss big societal trends like the separation of money from state and the separation of identity possibly from state. We talk about why technology innovation lags and why the costs keep rising in sectors where there's a lot of government regulation and intervention such as healthcare, education and real estate. We talk about an important component in the Web3 stack, the decentralized storage component. And we finish off the conversation by talking a little bit about what's happening in the Global Blockchain Business Council specifically in their digital ID working group. Now, thank you again for joining us today. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Sandra Rowe. Enjoy. So Sandra, I, uh, when I look back at when I got into the whole crypto blockchain space, it was um, in 2016 and I just got so excited about it. Um, so much so that I, I did a career change to, to just jump right into it and um, we're about five years later from 2016 now. And when I look back then, um, you, just, you just say, oh my God, things were immature. It was so exciting, but it, it's it's crazy to see um, the progress and evolution that has happened in the past five years. I, I think it's just um, the amount of people that have come in, the communities that have grown, the investor, and like everything has just gone in, in that direction of growth. Um, and for yourself, you got into the space. I'm looking back five years. When I got into the space, you were already in the five in the space for five years yourself. Um, I would love to hear just from you um, what kind of brought you into the whole crypto Web three space. What what you were doing before? What pulled you in? And kind of what was the scene at that point? Well, first of all, Mathieu, thank you for having me. It's a great chance to uh, walk down memory lane a little bit, crypto memory lane, I guess. Uh, yeah, so I was sitting in London and I was working in banking as a derivatives uh, special situation structure, uh, basically a very fancy way of saying I did M&A deals and did all the hedging for M&A deals. And the financial crisis had happened, uh, simply that. Uh, I had put myself on a banking track and thought I would be a banker until, you know, moving up the hierarchy and uh, the financial crisis happened. 
I was in the eye of the storm on a number of different levels, um, saw a lot of the fragility of uh, global financial systems, financial services. And it was a very scary time. Um, and having come out of that and hearing about this new technology, uh, at the time it was Bitcoin, I didn't think much of it, but a lot of the traders uh, in London in particular, just because I was there, really spent a lot of time actually looking at this tech and we didn't know, you know, Bitcoin price, I can't even remember, maybe it was like a couple of dollars, uh, maybe it was 20 bucks, it was definitely under 100. Um, and to think that it was going to one day be where it is today, that was the furthest thing I think from a lot of people's minds. I think the forefront of what people really cared about back then was, is this technology for real? Could you really have a network that is P2P, uh, transfers value with basically no intermediary and solves the double spend problem. That was a big deal um, to think that there could be no intermediaries. And I immediately went to thinking about my own markets, which were the foreign exchange or FX markets, people call them, and thinking, wow, does that make FX markets uh, and the current like paradigm of all these different intermediaries just go away? Like, does this completely make a paradigm shift? And that's so where a lot of us started. And so I bought Bitcoin, we met in like dodgy pubs in London. It was really like you said, it was immature. Like, wow, it was very immature back in 2011, 12, 13, where we were just all just trying to figure out, does this work? And it does. Uh, what happens to this thing and what can it be used for? And what are the applications? And that's really where the journey began. And you're right, today, when you look at the number of people, the number of applications, it's mind blowing, um, really, truly, how global all of this is. And now we're talking multi-trillions. It's funny when you talk about the, the sketch, sketchy pub meetups, that, that was kind of, kind of the same thing when I got into the space, but it was it was just so exciting because it was just like, I, yeah. I had never seen that much excitement around a group of people and uh, week over week, there was more and more people showing up. And I, I guess the difference at the time when, when I had gotten into it, we were, um, um, Ethereum had launched. And at that point we were kind of nearing um, the whole ICO fund. Uh, so a lot of people were, were getting interested um, um, in, in the whole thing, just seeing that there was a lot of money to be made or raised uh, around projects. Um, so but yeah. th those were crazy times, but actually, uh, I actually miss that sometimes, just the, the immaturity uh, around the whole space. It was just, um, everything just looked so promising. And not that it doesn't today, but it was, it was kind of a cool time. Well, I think also the early adopters in the space, once they understood the potential power of this technology and the various applications beyond um, the initial uh, use case, I think, really drew the intellectual curiosity, which of course still exists today. But I think you're right when we think about the speculative nature of, you know, a new technology and let's face it, the opportunity, like you said, to make a lot of money, it does attract also, unfortunately, the bad elements. And I think, um, the crypto universe, I guess we'll talk about the state of today, really is at a crossroads in my mind where we're seeing again, the hallmarks of a lot of um, 
unfortunately, unsavory uh, actors and malintentioned uh, folks to scam other people. And that's not good for the industry. However, we're also seeing maturity and we're also seeing um, development in other categories beyond financial services, which you could certainly talk about. But if I go back one more step in terms of the journey that I took, you know, I, I ended up at CME Group uh, running the R&D um, area for FX. And underneath that, we tucked in cryptocurrencies just because, well, we could quietly start researching because we were research and development. And um, what I think was really unique about that is we were one of the first big corporations, big institutions to really deep dive, deep dive into um not only Bitcoin, but the nature of digitizing value and what that looks like from a trading perspective, as well as beyond that. And I think that for us was really truly, I mean, we felt like pioneers because we were pioneers within that firm. And it was pretty great. We drew people from technology, from legal, from uh, product development, from compliance. I mean, we, we, had, we found all kinds of folks inside of the firm that were interested in this thing called cryptocurrencies. And um, we learned a lot by sharing. And I think that's the one thing I wanna pull out from our journey here over the last decade is the collaborative nature of this entire ecosystem and, and technology. It's unlike anything I've ever seen, this global grassroots, like helping each other and sharing information, I hope doesn't go away, even with the increased competition. And yeah, people want to make money. I totally get that. For-profit institutions, you know, they have value. Um, but I hope we don't ever lose that collaborative nature of this tech. Yeah, it definitely is wonderful. And that um, was like clearly one of the first things going from meetups to going into the technology and into different communities in the space. That That is so true. And that's what really personally drew me um, over the past couple of years into the decentralized identity space as well, where you really have the similar ethos and the similar mentality where people realize that um, for this stuff to succeed, you need to be able to collaborate. And so it's, it's so interesting where you, when you see various consulting firms or different technology solution providers, companies that would traditionally be uh, competing against each other rather than doing that, they're collaborating because they, they do realize that if they do collaborate, it increases the chances of uh, more widespread adoption of these technologies, which, which at the end of the day uh, grows grows the pie, which at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, satisfies the incentives that everyone uh, everyone is looking for. Um, I would also say, I guess, uh, just as a side note, I, I think people tend to talk about greed in the space a lot. I, I think greed definitely is a part of human nature to begin with to some extent, right? And, and I think a lot of the promising, you know, evolutions that we're seeing, and, and we can't discount things from, from happening when, when you're doing a lot of tests and, and trying out new things, but um, it allows you to just learn from mistakes or learn from traje trajectories that you don't necessarily want to cross again and put the right controls in place. But uh, at the end yeah. of the day, um, the, the stuff is here to stay. Yeah, I mean, look, um... I am a capitalist, uh, so I don't think for-profit um, driven motives are wrong, but I actually, but I do, and I am concerned about a capitalist only model, meaning um, 
everyone loses and I have to win mentality, the zero sum game mentality really needs, I think, um, a rethink. And I think our the generations that are coming up and even current today, I think there are question marks around that because why can't a for-profit institution of any kind, of any size, also think about its impact on society, whether it's climate change or whether it's you know immediate impact to the community and whether it's actually helping or actually harming, um, those should be part of any company's mission. And I just, I disagree with the ethos that others have to lose and, or everyone else has to lose in, uh, in order for me to win. I just think that mentality is really something um, this technology actually pushes up against, right? And pushes back in many ways. It is interesting to see, at least in corporate governance, uh, to your point, there, there, is, um, a, a, there are a lot of positives where you see corporations now forming and they have different structures that actually allow for-profit corporations to um, have these societal missions or, or, or goals um, kind of written into the governance of the company to not lose that as uh, growth occurs. Um, another area, I'm jumping a little deeper into um, where I was planning to, uh, planning to touch this later in the conversation, but... Um, what are you seeing around the distributed autonomous organizations? So the, these, these DAOs, because when I think about DAOs, this is where I think about, hey, these are, these are phenomenal vehicles for like-minded people that um, it, it could be any goal really, but if, if you have societal goals in mind, you could really, really leverage these tools to uh, advance whatever you're doing through, through a DAO. Yeah. Um... Do you remember the first DAO that happened back in, what was it, 2016 or 17? I actually put some money in to um, <laughs> go into the DAO and I was so excited, uh, but it was like any first experiment, right? Um, you should expect that things will go wrong and they did, uh, but it was still a fascinating learning experience of just people don't getting together from all over the world who don't know each other and, and, and crowdfunding, what was it at the time, 60 or $70 million? I forget, but um, it just seems so long ago. But today, the DAO of this version, I think is getting some form of legitimacy in the, uh, AKA, you know, Wyoming, the state of Wyoming has passed a law actually recognizing DAOs. I still think they're at its infancy. It's really around governance and how a group of people decide that they're going to organize themselves with no um, hierarchy, at least not in the traditional sense of like a CEO, for example. But I do think there will be challenges. Um, I think we've already seen that play out in some of the um, experiments that we, we've seen even in organizations that are not a DAO, like in DeFi. Um, sometimes the voting mechanism is difficult if you allow every single person to have an equal vote that sounds really great in principle but then when you get to practice it can or cannot fall apart depending on um, obviously the topic or the set of goals of that organization so i think we're going to see a entire like almost renaissance of different governance models experimentation i think this is going to be years in the making it's pretty exciting and it's funny how things go um, in and out, I guess, from a, um, I, I always make a difference between kind of the mainstream in, like B B Bitcoin went into the mainstream uh, like a few years ago, 
uh, NFTs kind of just went into the mainstream just recently, but it's funny seeing kind of like the the crypto mainstream, and it definitely seems like DAOs are, uh, uh, like you said, uh, going through a renaissance in the crypto mainstream right now. And um, I guess the cool thing about it is it, they are experiments, but just by like the nature of, of open source and almost being able to uh, leverage different protocols or different pieces of code, um, it allows for the innovation to go much quicker. Um, that, that's one of the things that I, I think in a broader kind of um, range of things, like we're seeing open source just growing overall and the largest companies in the world are recognizing that, like Microsoft purchasing GitHub um, and a lot of these companies over the past like decade or so moving more from uh, kind of garden walls to more open, open approach. But um, there is a beauty behind the open source in the crypto world where you could you could literally just play Legos, take, take pieces from all over the place and run your experiments much quicker um, than it would have cost maybe if things were closed in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head regarding what's so wonderful about a blockchain community and, and, and this entire eco set of ecosystems. It's just you can go in, it's, it's not only open source, but it's open access for the most part, right? And I'm talking about mainly the public chains. And, and the thought of that, like even, I don't know, I guess if you said that to somebody like 20 years ago, they probably thought you were crazy. Um, the thought that like all these different platforms would be completely free and open access. It's just not something I think that um, the first version of software really thought about. It was almost the opposite. And so I think for a lot of corporations, it's, and I'm talking about mainstream, it's a difficult mindset. Some get it, but I think from a culture standpoint and a mindset standpoint, it's still very difficult, which is why you don't see a lot of these corporations fully embracing 100%. I think there are very few exceptions. Like, you know, when you look at EY's um, baseline and nightfall, like to me, wow, like that's a corporation. That is a company uh, and yet they're pushing um, thanks to Paul Brody um, completely open source open access we have some good friends at uh, the EY offices in, in Toronto and um, in, in Dallas as well actually and it's just been phenomenal um, and exciting to see them take uh, this approach to, towards their blockchain strategy and, and push, pushing this stuff out to to their client base and really investing in uh, open privacy protocols uh, has been phenomenal. The contributions they've made to the community. That, that's what I love about like back to DAOs. That's what I love about the DAOs. I, I think it's just, um, it, it's a different way of coordinating people together. You're not necessarily constrained by physical boundaries anymore and a, a corporate structure. Um, it's, it's really ground up community driven. And that's why I find so cool. I think, um, a lot of the companies in the crypto space to date have been kind of just um, just regular regular companies, right? It's like you, you incorporate somewhere, you, you have your regular company and, and yeah. you're investing in building products that yeah. are using this. But the, the cool thing with DAOs and there's some cool examples from just seeing Shapeshift decentralize or announced that last week, um, seeing the syndicate raise a bunch of money from uh, early users. You're starting to see just... Um, a change in the way people think about uh, coordination and, and corporate structure. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I will make one caveat there, which I think is something for all of us to look out for, is um, I completely agree with you, the power of bringing lots of different people together. You can raise awesome amounts of capital now 
in, in a non-traditional form. And you can also get lots of people doing very cool things within a common mission or a set of goals to, to achieve much faster than you could ever do on your own or with a small group in a hierarchy. But I think where the real test will come because there's still not solidified legal status around DAOs globally, when things go wrong, when huge amounts of funds or I don't know, a smart contract's written incorrectly and there is a bug and tons of people lose money. I'm just giving hypothetical, I'm not saying it's happening, but where do you go for recourse? And as someone who is um, you know, a former banker, also market infrastructure, nobody ever thanks you when you run market infrastructure for running it day to day and it functions, they will pile on top of you and scream at you when it goes wrong and it doesn't work or there's an outage. And I guess that's part of human nature as well. And so for me, the success of any organization and any system, doesn't matter what type it is, is when it's under stress and it's under um, you know, a risk type scenario where something goes wrong. How is it dealt with? Who's accountable? And how does it get fixed? And I think if DAOs can figure that out um, with or without the legal system, That'll be very interesting to watch out for. I guess, and I guess you don't know you don't know what you don't know, right? Until something uh, something goes wrong, or you, you don't know yeah. in something new it, like this. Yeah, it's it's the running. It's the saying that like when times are good and everyone's making money, it's kind of like when the stock market goes up, right? Like everyone's like high fiving. It's all great. Um, no problems. And then you know the minute there's a downturn or something significant happens. Um, and I think there have been pockets of this in the crypto space as well. Like, you know, what do people do? They lose money, they turn around, they sue someone or they want to hold someone accountable. And it's not, you know, those kind of core human traits do not really change no matter what technology we're talking about. So I guess the point is I'm trying to make is when things go wrong in DAOs, which they will, who will or what will be in place to help navigate the disputes, um, you know, find the resolutions and allow for that network or, um, you know, organization to continue. Because that resiliency is key to sustainability, right? If we're going to have this stuff for the long term and they're going to be, um, they're going to grow and prosper, they also need to deal with, um, you know, challenges and, and any knock-on effects of um, things going wrong. And I think there have been a few in the DeFi space that I think can give us a bird's eye view. For example, um, there have been some smart contracts, you know, that have had issues and they've um, had losses in the millions now. And it's interesting to me because I think if we were talking five years ago, we probably would have been talking about much smaller numbers, but because the industry has grown so much, now, typical losses are millions, tens of millions, and potentially even hundreds of millions, which means, you know, it gets people's attention a lot more, and it certainly gets regulator attention much more frequently now, just simply by the fact the industry's bigger. It's no longer this, you know, sort of side um, interest of just a small group of people. Uh, it's growing, it's pervasive, and it's not going away. 
it's quite funny when you think about it, like a lot of these projects that are would, would still be categorized as early in the innovation cycle or R&D. Um, the difference between this this type of R&D and R&D in the traditional world is it's not tied to monetary value in a protocol that's that's live and that has a lot of risk for people. So, so that's quite funny, right? Like you're you're still seeing a lot of experiments and stuff like that, but it's just the, the, the scale at which things could go wrong are just uh, drastically larger than just in inside a lab, right? Where it's just between the four walls and, and we're just, we're running oh, some yeah. tests. Oh yeah, um, I mean, we're talking about an unbridled global experimentation, which is like amazing and also a little bit scary at the same time. Real scary. Um, <laughs> you, um, you you mentioned earlier, like going through um, kind of before you got into to Bitcoin, just having gone through the financial crisis and um, um, it is funny that I guess the um, the Genesis block on Bitcoin had a note that kind of referred to uh, the bailouts that the banks were getting at the time. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because I, I want to jump into central bank uh, digital currencies because I know at the GBBC um, there's a lot of effort and thinking that goes into this, a lot of time spent on this. Um, I did talk about uh, CBDCs uh, just recently in another podcast with uh, James Laperfito from Tangem, who is a, a member of the GBBC, um, also as part of the digital identity working group within, within that organization. Um, but I, I would love to hear your perspective on CBDCs. Um, and, and I find it ironic to a certain extent that um, the, not the, the reason Bitcoin was created, but there was a reference to kind of um, the issues that uh, Satoshi had with with central uh, central bank power, I guess. Um, it seems that a lot of the central bank digital currency conversations are happening within the crypto community as well. So uh, how do you look at that whole scene and what's happening right now? Well, first of all, shout out to James, awesome human and friend. Um, so great that you had him on a podcast. I Regarding CBDCs and stable coins and cryptocurrencies, I find it very perplexing, Mathieu, why people look at things so black and white sometimes. So there's an entire group of folks who make the argument that somehow all these things are cannot coexist in the world, that they somehow, one's going to kill the other. And look, there may be within the grayness of the different functions of CBDCs and stable coins, for example, where you know, a CBDC comes in and maybe the thing that was pegged one for one to that original fiat currency may lose some, you know, of its of its value in the ecosystem because there's now the CBDC version. I don't know. But what I think we need to get to is a place where there is more granular thinking around what is this CBDC for? What is this stable coin for? And what is this cryptocurrency for? Because I will tell you, looking at things from a macro perspective around the world, there are different needs of different people regarding the transfer of data as value, AKA money moving around in the new digital infrastructure or in a digital infrastructure. And when I think about the needs of a farmer sitting in Cameroon versus, um, you know, someone in distress, like in Haiti, for example, who's been cut off from, you know, basically the internet. Um, these are very different 
problems or versus the US trying to deliver um, funds via you know, their mechanism. Some work, some don't. And the question that I have is why are we not approaching this from a problem first perspective? And then what tools are out there um, or what tools do we need to develop and products do we need to develop to get to the right solution or the best solution? Um, and maybe it's a couple different solutions depending on the use case. And so I've been making the argument to a lot of folks that um, CBDCs are not inherently bad or good. Neither are crypto, neither are um, stable coins. The question I have always is what's the motivation for creating these things? What problem are we solving here? And do we need to implement a new solution for that particular problem? And in some cases, yes, because there is no infrastructure to deliver um, cheaply micropayments, for example, especially cross-border. I think that's one of the biggest problems that's out there is how do you deliver efficient and cheap, almost next to nothing, low cost, um, no cost, uh, cross-border payments. You should be able to move 10 Canadian dollars to anyone in the world, just like uh, email. Imagine if we got to that. That's a very interesting perspective of um, it's not one solution fits all. It's never like that anyways in the real world. So it's just understanding what, what's the use case, what's the motivation. Like I could imagine the amount of time that people just in the U.S., for example, waited in distress for stimulus checks um, that didn't come quickly or at all because of the process that's that's in place. That's where something like CBDCs, you know, would have been quite valuable. Um but then for, for other folks that um, have have privacy use cases or maybe don't necessarily want to have traceability, maybe maybe it doesn't fit. So it just, it comes down to, um, I guess, what, what problems are you trying to solve with it? Yeah, and look, I think there are a lot of um, subtopics within the CBDC category. And I am absolutely on side with folks who are worried about um, government surveillance and programming money to basically surveil citizens. That it should not be the focus of a CBDC, at least in a, within a democracy, right? Um, so how do you protect that? And how do you balance between, you know, KYC AML rules and keeping, you know, um, nefarious actors from manipulating CBDCs and the digital infrastructure to the more important part, which I would say is to help citizens who are in need of either these benefits or the, the government um, funds. In, in some ways it works if you are properly part of the system. And let's say for example, in the US, I'll just give the US example, just cause I happen to be sitting here. Um, if you're registered and you've been filing taxes with the IRS, the IRS has your contact details and you're probably able to get any kind of like fund directly into your bank account if the IRS has that correct information. However, if you fall outside of that and you are um, not registered for whatever reason, or you know, you're just one of the many millions of people who are challenged um, and, and are not sitting there with the correct information with the IRS, then guess what? You're gonna have a hard time because the US doesn't have a national digital identity solution that um, captures everyone. We have issues around migrant workers. We have issues around undocumented folks. We have lots of different issues and there are tons of people who are left out of the system. Um, sometimes it's clerical error. Sometimes it's actually intentional. How do we help those people? 
I think the the combination uh, you mentioned the, the there's no like um, widespread digital identity system in the U.S. I think that the combination of ID and payments is a very strong um, a very strong idea for a lot of these things to succeed. Um, do you think that I guess because like within within modern monetary framework um, that are kind of uh, managed centrally by central banks. Um, when money is is created, and there's a lot a lot of new money created recently in the U.S., but when it's created and distributed, it gets distributed through partners, which are kind of like commercial banks. Um, do, do do you view commercial banks potentially being disrupted by kind of a if you, if you imagine a world where you have uh, uh, CBDCs with a strong digital identity? Um, do a lot of the central bank or Pardon me. Do a lot of the commercial banks' functions get disintermediated? I think one of the things that a lot of folks um, conflate is that somehow central bank money is the money that's sitting in your bank account. That is not the case. Um, there are different types of money, and then there's the wholesale market, and then there's also the retail market. And when you're talking about different types of money, like Commercial banks um, are able to basically issue IOUs, which is, you know, uh, a lot of people rail against, which is the fractional banking um, system, because of the way the current uh, banking system works, which is IOUs, IOUs all day long, and then they basically get settled with the prevailing central bank in a batch process, right? So. Um, if you think about intraday risk, there is actually intraday risk that these banks fall apart and um, something goes wrong. But ha having said that, there are also guarantees in place to ensure financial stability, which is actually critical to all of our daily lives, at least sitting in the U.S. Um, I will say that in terms of disintermediation, mm, that might be the case for certain countries because they didn't really have a strong commercial banking system to begin with. But for the ones that have legacy banking systems that are quite strong and quite um, entrenched, I think it will be interesting to see how they evolve. But do they go away in reality? I don't think so. Um, there will always be probably some sort of commercial bank function. Um, it is not for the central bank to take over the commercial bank function, if that makes sense. Got it. So, so you have an ecosystem of all these different um, types of money or type types of infrastructure for payments. You you could have CBDCs. You could also have non-government issued stable coins or tokens that that get used by different DeFi protocols and such. Um, I'd be interested to hear from you. I, I think for I don't know the the past fifteen years now. Um, We've basically seen um, fintech threaten a, a lot of market share that that the banks have. I, I think, um, unlike a lot of people had predicted, where fintech would just eat up the banks, there's been a lot more um, mergers and acquisitions or partnerships between them. Although fintech has um, eaten up market share, but also has created new market share. Um, how do you see DeFi interacting with fintech? Does DeFi just become fintech? Uh, does DeFi eat away at fintech? Uh, what's your perspective on all that? Yeah, no, I think we have a fascinating, we, we are living in a fascinating period of time where 
you know, not only have we or are we going through a pandemic, but there are, we're already paradigm shifts happening because of technology. And I think one thing I just want to highlight in terms of the financial services industry, just because that's where I come from, um, there were already fintechs, yes, eating away at different parts of legacy existing um, institutions, whether it was asset management side or whether it was consumer banking or commercial banking or investment banking. Because remember, like even though we saw, talk about banking, they're, they're not a monolith. There's lots of different areas of financial services, right? Kind of the last to really go, I think, will be insurance because it's kind of the kind of oldest stalwart, but even they're being innovated on, upon. Um, and, and I think what has also been an interesting trend beyond the fintechs coming in is think about the big tech firms. Like there are big tech firms that are now increasingly going into financial services. So the banks aren't just being um, under pressure because of technology and fintech, they're actually under pressure because the big tech's coming in and saying, hey, I'm gonna offer different pieces of financial services, whether that's a digital wallet or whether that is, um, you know, insurance or whatever products that typically you would only go to a bank for. So the lines are being blurred about who offers financial services, first of all. And then from a regulator standpoint, like that gets pretty hard because yes, there are rules for banks and certain products or sorry, certain services. But if you think about it, if you take those same products and start then diffusing them across different like groups like big tech, fintech and now DeFi, it becomes much more challenging for the regulator to determine whether actually these guys are all under our um, purview. And it might be like one day, uh, if Apple decides to enter into specific areas that are highly regulated and require a license, they'll have to get a banking license. Or um, right now with DeFi, I don't know if you, you saw the headlines, I think it was this morning or last night, um, BlockFi, which is really not DeFi, it's CeFi, but BlockFi has been um, handed a, a cease and desist by the New Jersey uh, Attorney General for basically acting and servicing, um, and I guess they say they've broken securities law um, by offering in interest products, um, interest bearing products. And so these are gonna be interesting challenges that we're gonna see as different players come into the financial services ecosystem. I don't care whether you're DeFi or not, it's gonna really be around, are you offering things and products and services that hit regulatory um, oversight. It, it becomes interesting, or I, I guess um, difficult at times for, for entrepreneurs entering the space, especially in models where there's no current regulation that, that covers what's happening. Like it, you could clearly see sometimes that like, okay, um, you talk to your lawyer, but you, you could see you getting into a space and you could see, you know what, like this, there, there's current, um, securities law or whatever regulation that uh, clearly demonstrates that what I'm trying to do here breaks that, but there's, there's a lot of gray zones. And like you described, I, I think we're going to see a lot more vertical SaaS companies move into financial services. Cause it's kind of like once, once you've acquired um, uh, market share for a specific vertical, and once you have 
the recurring revenue coming from that, like the logical next step is to move into financial services. And I, I think that that is a big trend that you, you've kind of uh, illustrated that, that we're going to see more and more of. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what is going to be challenging for regulators. Obviously, I'm not a regulator, so I can't say how they're planning on going about doing this. But um, and also in the U.S., it's more complex because we've got so many different regulators handling different pieces of financial services, for example. But uh, let's go back to our like moving micropayments around frictionlessly like email, right? In that world, think about all of our chat messaging apps. Like we should be able to move around small amounts pretty easily just by sending a message. And I think we're going to get there. Um, someone's going to offer that. I guess the question is, do they then automatically become a payment services provider? And if so, then they're then they need to in the U.S. get money transmitter licenses, which, by the way, means it's all 50 states that you need to go apply for money transmitter licenses as it currently stands. Uh, pretty complicated if you're a tech company. Wow. All of a sudden you have to get all these licenses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not a regulator, not a lawyer, complicated space. And uh, it'll be yeah. very interesting to see how this plays out. The only thing we can be sure of is I will say right now, because the lines have been blurred by amazing innovation. And let's face it, like a lot of this is really starting to be democratized across, you know, different entrepreneurs who come up with a solution and a, and a product and a service. Um, they're able to offer it, especially in DeFi, where there's so much innovation going on, it's going to be very interesting to see where um, the regulatory roadblocks come in. And um, I see it this way: the first generation of DeFi innovation is going to is going to encounter a lot of what happened in the first generation version of fintech. They're going to be met with regulatory hurdles. Uh, there will be challenges. The industry's probably going to, you know, um, have truncated growth for a while, meaning it'll have to like kind of step back and regroup. And we'll see what the regulatory landscape ends up looking like. But eventually, there'll be a huge growth spurt again um, once that clarity comes in. Um, so if this is the Wild West phase, then we will have a more tempered, um, you know, within regulatory guardrails phase at some point. I think we're just entering the regulatory guardrails coming in. Switching gears a bit, I want to talk about a few industries, um, one being education that I know is, uh, is dear to you. One of the things I've personally noticed I haven't explored it too deeply, but I've always been interested in kind of having this conversation. And I felt like uh, since you're so well-rounded, you, you, you would, uh, you know, ha have a perspective on this. Um, is that in, in a lot of industries that are driven by technology, um, they're really deflationary, meaning um, the TV, you know, I just bought a new house and the TV that I'm going to buy and mount into a, into a basement room there, this 70 inch TV, the price it cost me today, which is, I don't know, $1,000, 10 years ago would have cost me $10,000. Um, and you have a lot of these um, industries that are driven by, uh, I, I guess, uh, driven a lot by the private sector and, and a lot in technology, R&D, innovation, where the prices go down over time. Um, but there seems to be industries like education, like healthcare, like real estate, 
um, industries where there's a lot of government intervention and we see the opposite happen where, where my TV prices are going down year over year, the prices in healthcare, the prices in education, the prices in real estate are going up. Um, why, why is that phenomenon happening? I am equally as uh, concerned when compliance and regulatory and legal requirements um, basically eat up and, and cost um, innovation uh, millions, if not billions of dollars of investment just to um, comply. That's not good for society, it's not good for anyone. So in many ways, um, I don't know if a DAO is a solution, but I think some sort of utility distributed network that allows for regulatory adherence at zero cost. So we're working on something right now. I can't go into too many details because the public release is not happening until uh, a few weeks from now, but I'm working with a number of folks around the world um, related to the FATF travel rule implementation. So whether we like it or not, countries are going to write rules around the travel rule and how does crypto and the community of VASPs actually figure out ways to comply without spending, in my mind, too much money? How can we do this in a way, if we're willing to accept that we have to comply, then how do we do it in a way that actually satisfy that requirement, but keeps it extremely low cost? Well, the only way to do it is if we come up with a distributed set of standards and adherence mechanisms, aka software, or metrics that allow us to prove that it is it has been complied with, um, and then regulars are hopefully able to have sight of it, and um, we can do it in a way that keeps all stakeholders happy. But I don't know if that's going to happen. That, that's a realm of reg tech. I think the community should be spending more time on because it is beneficial to work with the regulators, not fight against them if we want this to scale in mainstream world. That would be my suggestion is don't let companies or a single company own the market where they offer one software product that allows the compliance, then they jack up the rates and everyone's beholden to it. Or because there's no clarity, you end up hiring lawyers, legal fees go up, no offense to lawyers, um, you know, we need lawyers, but an innovator should not be spending most of their money on legal clarity, simply put. Got it. So being able to codify um, rules and policies to, to make it more accessible, I guess, to innovators and entrepreneurs to, to tap into that without having to uh, learn about everything, invest in, in, in legal resources and everything to, to make them do that. That makes sense. If we get the rules of the road, let's just code it, codify it, and let it run its own network and everyone can comply and it could be it could cost very little and let everyone have access to it you know if it's a u.s thing if it's a eu thing um to me that would be an ultimate distributed uh system that would benefit everyone the ecosystem that's in the crypto space so another component of, of the crypto or, or Web3 space that I know you, you know quite well as well, we just talked about codifying compliance requirements, perhaps, which could leverage uh, distributed protocols and smart contracts and just leaving distributed audit logs and, and so forth and proofs. 
Um, another piece you know very well is decentralized storage. Um, I'd be quite interested in hearing, I think there's different ways that people, um, even in the crypto space today, use to store different files. Some are still centralized, some are just decentralized just through, or I guess through distributed databases, but you have other ones that have incentive mechanisms built into it. And I know you're uh, associated with, uh, with Filecoin, um, which, which is one of the leaders in the decentralized storage space. Um, what, how, like, how are we going to see the centralized storage grow in usage over the next few years? And why is that really critical to a lot of the use cases of uh, Web3 really achieving what they've set out to achieve? Well, thank you, Matthew, for bringing it up, because for some reason, I feel like we don't talk about this enough and everyone just thinks that, oh, well, I'm storing my data in the cloud. That's good enough. We're done. Uh, no, we're not done, because if we think about the world of data, ultimately, we're throwing up more and more data. I don't know what the latest count is, but um, I'm sure someone can look it up. But we are we are data producers, like everyone's producing more and more data data and there's where's that data gonna go and I know for different reasons some people still want to have their own server and keep it you know to themselves but in a world where we're sharing more and more data and how do we share that securely um, networks like Filecoin and full disclosure I'm on the advisory board of Filecoin Foundation um, I've been a long time uh, advocate and uh, supporter of the project and I'm just really glad that they're um, proliferating and um, supporting so many other projects around the world um, to, to start utilizing decentralized storage. Here's the thing, data is going to be not only important regarding your own personal data, but it's gonna be important regarding value and, and money. Uh, and there are different hierarchies of data. Some data is kind of just silly and just out there, no big deal. So maybe you don't need to secure it um, with you know, Uber security, but then there's very sensitive data. Do you really want your healthcare records getting out there? Do you really want you know, certain really sensitive financial information getting out there about yourself? Um, you know, so we need also different solutions for the different types of data that we are increasingly creating. And I've spoken to behind closed doors, um, you know, a Senate, Senate committee, Judiciary Committee actually, around this topic, which is the, the different nature and the classifications around the data that we have. Some may still be fine to sit on servers and cloud, but there are other distributed solutions out there like Filecoin, but there are other, others as well that we need to be encouraging the development of and actually putting resources to, to not only take on the quantity of data we need stored around the world, but also um, better security measures for not having honeypots of data that get attacked and hacked all the time. I feel like, you know, we see these hack attacks and we're like, oh yeah, another hacking, another whatever, cybersecurity breach. It's a big deal. And in the US, it's becoming obviously a very big deal because it's now critical infrastructure that's being attacked. And so um, I know this is a long winded way of me saying this, but I actually believe the decentralized storage um, solutions that are out there may also be a key 
to helping us solve the honeypots of data being stored issue, which then attract the hacking. I think it's a, a similar comment to um, the one you made with the CBDCs about kind of, um, it, it's not, it's not going to be one that wins all. It's not a zero sum game. You need to have a mix of stuff for different use cases. It, it's sounding the same as you're talking through this. Um, a lot of the use cases that we're working on in the decentralized identity space, um, we've seen the architecture of that shift over the past few years when you know, we, we had done a, a proof of concept for a, a government a few years ago. And at the time it was kind of like, we we're gonna, because it's decentralized identity, we want to use a blockchain and we want to store stuff on a blockchain. Then it's like, okay, well, um, it's maybe not cost efficient to do that, number one. Number two, well, there's actually massive privacy concerns with doing something like that. So it evolves a little bit. And then now you see, hmm, if, if you want to be in control, and have ownership of your own data it doesn't necessarily need to be stored in a central place and a blockchain is uh, to, to some extent a, a certain place it's distributed nodes but you're storing it centrally on a ledger so okay let, let's let's use kind of uh, edge database mechanisms to store uh, personal data and have them cryptographically verifiable on there uh, but then you start saying well okay now i need um, I have a need for backup and recovery services if this is going to be user-friendly. And that's where you maybe start pulling up stuff like Filecoin or decentralized storage to store um, kind of your, your verifiable credentials or whatever you need to store if you need to recover it, if you lose your phone, for example. So all, all that to say, um, I could see it being quite interesting just having some sort of, I don't even know what it would look like, but some sort of matrix that helps you classify uh, where data should go and where data should not go. Um, in some quadrant or classification, that that would be kind of a cool thing just to to, to show, uh, you know, there's a reason why you would use cloud and you should use it for this. There's a reason why you should use edge databases and it's for this. There's a reason why you should use distributed storage protocols and it's for this. Yeah, I actually wonder if someone's working on that because if they're not, we should really get somebody to map that out. Um, that's a great idea, too, actually. Well, and I'm not uh, saying it's going to be perfect. But no, well, you guys, it's, it's something to iterate on. And it, it sounds like the GBBC has uh, <laughs> different working groups that uh, <laughs> could collaborate together on stuff. So that may be a good place for it. But um, what well, just uh, as we finish clever. here, sorry, Sandra. Yeah, how clever of you. you've given us. I said, how clever of you. You've given us more homework to do. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, your, your members are going to be happy. Um, but yeah, so just as we, we close in mentioning the GBBC here, just for, for the audience here that um, maybe has not heard of the GBBC, would you be able to give just a bit of an overview of uh, what the goals and missions of the organization are and some of the interesting things that are being worked on? And for a lot of the audience here, uh, there is a lot of work happening within the digital ID working group in the GBBC as well, which uh, is, is uh, worth checking out. So we'd love to hear just a little bit more about the organization, Sandra. Yeah, so first of all, thank you for that. The Global Blockchain Business Council, the GBBC, is legally speaking a nonprofit association incorporated in Geneva, Switzerland. And we have uh, subsidiaries and uh, offices around the world, including London, Washington, DC, and New York. But think of us as more a federated model and network of builders and leaders uh, around the world, including over 270 institutional members from Fortune 100s all the way down to startups you've never heard of from 
really tiny islands around the world to 130 ambassadors who represent us on the ground across 76 uh, jurisdictions and disciplines. So we have a vast global network of, as I said, builders, leaders, dreamers, but we have one common purpose, which is we believe that blockchain and digital assets and cryptocurrencies are uh, a multi-trillion dollar industry in the making. And there are many, many layers to this. And so we are critically focused on education, advocacy and partnership. And we wanna bring folks together who want to solve real world problems, who want to help each other, and to create opportunities around the world. I hope we don't end up with five huge companies that control everything. I actually hope we create networks upon networks of different groups of people, whether they are DAOs or corporations or whatever organization makeup in between, um, who are able to tackle some of the biggest you know, global problems that we have in the world. And so, we care very much about SDGs, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, as long alongside the growing of this business and industry. We do not have to forsake um, caring about society and community uh, because we're busy making money. We can do both. And frankly, that's really the makeup of our membership. I call us, uh, you know, there are folks have bright minds, but they also have good hearts. And they're all working on different aspects of some very big problems that are out there in the world. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episodes, or to catch up on ones you may have missed, make sure to check out the SSI Orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And make sure you subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzger Glowed on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.